Hey guys, I'm Adam Rapport, and you're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. This week we have on Basically editor Sarah John Powell. She's back talking about the Basically Guide to Mushrooms in our December issue. She covers everything you want to know about them, including like, do you need to wash them? I never know which ones to buy, what to deal with the wild ones versus the not wild, how to cook with them, when to salt them, all those mushroom questions. After that, Digital Director Kerry Paulus chats with Catherine Bailey and Robin Petrovich, the owners of Heath Ceramics. If you don't happen to be familiar with Heath, they are the iconic California-based ceramics company that has been around since 1948, consistently selling both to the public and to restaurants, including Chez Panisse. Kathy and Robin took over in 2003 from the Heath family and have been working on both expanding and maintaining the one-of-a-kind look of Heath's ceramics. Last but not least, after a few weeks on hiatus, Senior staff writer Alex Beggs is back with her latest installment of Cook, Mary Kill. And when she tells us one thing she cooked this week, one thing in the food world she wants to marry, and, well, you know, one thing she wants to kill. A reminder before we get going, it is officially the holiday season, which means you need to buy some gifts. Well, good news. As you might remember from last week, we have restocked Bon Appetit's merch shop. The Brad Leone and Yeti collab Burger Bottle is now available for pre-order. We've got the classic baseball caps, plus we've added some super cozy long sleeve t-shirts and sweatshirts. We've got tees that show our collective love of jammy eggs and other featuring our favorite slurpable noodles and more. The last day to order in time for the holidays is December 9th, so get on it now. And with that, here is this week's show. John Powell, I always have a hard time cleaning mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And I never know if I'm doing it right or I always feel like I'm destroying them. And then I'm wondering, do I even need to clean them? Well, where are you getting your mushrooms from? Uh, the store. I, don't, I mean, The grocery store. Yeah, but well, okay, maybe the farmer's market or something. But some of those more like wild ones, they, they look like there's dirt and stuff on there. Well, chances are that the mushrooms you're buying aren't actually wild. Oh. They are cultivated. So maybe once upon a time they were wild and people harvested them. But now they're grown indoors in big so farms. So they're like wild in air quotes? They're wild-ish is what wild. we call them in the issue. <laughs> Most of the time when you buy mushrooms at the grocery store, they're not actually dirty. Like you don't see particles of dirt on them. I don't? Well, what am I seeing? I feel like I there's mean, something. You can like... But if you do see dirt, the easiest and most effective way to clean them is just to brush them with a dry cloth. Because once you introduce moisture, yeah. then it becomes harder to make those mushrooms crispy later on, which seems to be um, the be-all, end-all mushroom texture that we're all looking for. I think that's fair. It's like I think of mushrooms like steak. You want them all crispy and caramelized on the outside and tender within. Yeah, I mean, I think that for every mushroom, there's a purpose and so like a portobello mushroom maybe you hate those but those are never going to be crispy and like enoki mushrooms i don't think the point of those is to achieve crispness do people still buy portobello mushrooms i don't mind them remember you got like you you i'd go to like some like some market they'd have like the portobello mushroom burger and it's just like shellacked in like teriyaki sauce that they then would throw in the grill oh my god do I need a mushroom broth? I want to get to cooking, but a brush. No. No. 
you could use a pastry brush okay. if you have one or just a dry dish towel or dry paper towel. If they're really dirty, like let's say you did get some really fancy mushroom that was foraged and it's covered in dirt, then yes, clean them, but make sure you use them right away because once they're wet, they're going to get really slimy in the refrigerator. God. But Mushroom. mushrooms aren't that hard. It shouldn't. It's not that intimidating. Most of the time, when you buy mushrooms and they come in, they come wrapped at the grocery store. They're not dirty. They haven't really touched dirt okay. in their lives. <laughs> All right. We're gonna get back to specific mushrooms, but you'd mentioned crispy in your basically section in the back of the November issue of Bon Appetit. You got a three-page sort of everything you need to know about mushrooms guide, and the first point you say high heat plus plenty of fat equals a winning combination. Yeah, so it seems like I, well, I can remember, I went to Mexico a couple of years ago and when we landed, I'm vegetarian, we went to a vegetarian restaurant immediately and I didn't know what I was doing and I ordered a plate of what came as just like kind of steamed mushrooms, basically Mm. nothing else. So they were like (laughs) gray, limp, watery i was i was very tired and um, extremely unhappy and it was completely my fault but i think that people who don't like mushrooms kind of associate them with like they're kind of soggy they're kind of pale or you Um, grow up eating like the bad like canned sliced mushrooms on pizza yeah that are like squeaky and squishy so to avoid that problem the the issue with why mushrooms are like that is because they're mostly water. So the way to get that water off of the mushrooms is to cook them in high heat and just make sure that water is cooking off. Okay, and we, and we have a recipe in Bon Appetit, seared mushrooms with garlic and thyme. And you look at that photo and you're like, oh, they're yeah. all wispy and crispy. And they're golden brown. Yeah, they're gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> and, the big, and the big key move there, if I may, what, what I've learned from you guys in the test kitchen you get them all crispy with high heat. Don't perturb them. Oh, perturb them? Perturb them. No, is that what I'm trying to say? Disturb Don't them? disturb them. <laughs> Leave them unperturbed. Let them get all crispy on one side as if you're cooking a steak. Turn them over. Then if you want to zhuzh them up, you can add a little butter and garlic and stuff. But don't salt them till they come out of the pan, correct? I think out of the pan is a little dramatic. <laughs> I think you can salt them as soon as they get that first layer of color. Okay, when they built up like an armor. Right. The issue with salt is that salt pulls out moisture. So if you're pulling out the moisture too quickly, then they're kind of like they're sweating and they won't get as crisp and See, brown. I've done that before where I'm sauteing them and I have salt and then they're, just, they're basically just simmering in a bunch of water and then you're like, oh, this is just depressing. Right. And the thing is, eventually they will get to that browning point, even if you salt them. All hope is not lost. It will just take longer. Okay. So you've got some beautiful, crispy, caramelly brown mushrooms. Mm -hmm. What do you like to do with them? I just eat them as they are, but that's boring. Um, You can put them over. Like, I would, I mean, in my ideal world, I would whip ricotta with like lemon zest and olive oil and some thyme or something and then put it in a bowl and then sprinkle those mushrooms over top and use it as a dip with some of Chris Morocco's yogurt flatbread. Sounds good. That sounds interesting. Um, Or, Or, I mean, they're great in pasta. Grand or pasta. So over scrambled eggs. But if you're going to do them in pasta, you've got to do the same thing. You've got to brown them first, then take them out of the pan. Or do you kind of, how would you do yeah, that? Yeah, once you start introducing moisture, then 
even if you crisp the mushrooms, they're not going to remain crispy. They need to be the last thing. You need to do them separately and then introduce them later on. Okay. I mean, they're also great in a grain salad or just a you yeah. know a chopped salad. I like the grain salad. We, so we do have a recipe for mushroom carbonara pasta in the November issue. Mm-hmm. Or actually, I think we throw to it online. Uh, you can get it at bonappetit.com slash mushroom pasta. Mushroom dash pasta, apparently. That's what it says. Okay. All right. So I love that. You know what else I like what you guys do in the test kitchen? I don't know if you've noticed this, Emma. In the last year, like the Andy Barragani's and Chris Morocco's of the world, they never slice their mushrooms. They tear the mushrooms, especially the wild ones, like the chanterelles and all the shiitakes and everything. So they're like these mushroom shards that have all these other like sort of craggy bits that get the nice crispy but do you, mm-hmm. do, you, do you endorse that? Yes. It's easier. It's faster. And it makes for all these cool, uneven surfaces that kind of brown unevenly and get you great texture. Yeah. Highly endorse the torn mushroom. We even tear um, criminis in yeah. half or in quarters. You might as well because criminis, those are, those are like the basic button mushrooms. They look so basic if you just slice them. They look like an like a emoji of a mushroom. Right. Which, but you can make them very fascinating by just tearing them yes, instead of exactly. chopping. So I no, I think that's a, that's a great move. The getting high heat with oil, plenty of fat is great. Salting after is great. Number four, dried mushrooms are there for you. I never buy dried mushrooms, ever. Like I know I should, but I don't. Should I? Yes. Yes, you should buy them. I mean, first of all, they last forever. So if you buy them, like, there's no risk. You can just have them. I have a whole dried mushroom bag in my pantry really? <laughs> right next to the dried seaweed bag. Mm, that um, sounds like a lot of fun. What um, <laughs> what do you like to do with them? Because I don't eat meat, I use dried mushrooms when I'm making vegetarian stock or when Ooh. I'm boiling beans. Or if you're using, like let's say that you want to use a lot of mushrooms, like you're making a mushroom ragu or something like that, and you don't want to buy super expensive mushrooms, then you can use some dried mushrooms and they have such a concentrated flavor that they'll bulk up your less expensive, more mild mushrooms. Oh, so they, they kind of give you that umami boost. Yeah, and you can use, I mean, you don't have to just use them to infuse stock and then throw them away. You can eat them. As long as they're rehydrated, you can chop them up and throw them into whatever you're eating. How often will you go to like the fancy store and buy like the $27 a pound chanterelles and stuff? Do you partake in that sort of like, uh, like mushroom enthusiast behavior? I think that if I'm at the farmer's market and I see like the blue oyster mushrooms or the yellow oyster mushrooms, I am very likely to buy them. Maybe I do that twice a year. But mushrooms shrink down so much because they're mostly water that you can end up spending $30 on mushrooms and have enough for two people, which is painful. And I don't think that like all the hype, I love beautiful mushrooms. I'm not sure they deserve all the hype. They're not like, for everyday occasions. Like, would you notice the difference? I mean, I, I, what I will do sometimes, I'll go to the market and I'll get a mixture of some basic criminies, but then some chanterelles, maybe some shiitakes, or if there's a maitake there, because each one doesn't weigh that much. So you mix some of the $27 a pound mm-hmm. with the $6 a pound, mm-hmm. and then you get enough to make pasta for you and your spouse or something without it being insanely expensive. Yeah, I mean, I think that the... More expensive mushrooms, they're definitely more beautiful. They definitely have stronger, more pronounced flavor. But that's not to say that you can't make a cremini mushroom delicious. And so for basically mushroom carbonara, one of the most important things for that recipe was that we were using cremini mushrooms. 
and coaxing all of the flavor out of them by getting them super brown and cooking them for a really long time so that you're not missing um, the shiitakes or the mayatakes of the world. That's true, but whoever the food stylist was on this shoot, um, <laughs> is there a name on there? I don't know if there is. Uh, hold on a second. Photography, image. Anyways, food style, maybe it was Kat. Um, Kat. She didn't tear the crimities. She sliced them. She sliced them. Uh-oh. They reshoot. still look good. <laughs> Call Michelle out. We're, we're doing a reshoot. Uh, no, that does look delicious. I um, Have you ever had fresh porcinis in Italy? No. Have I? I don't think so. You would remember. So. I do remember. It's one of those things like you'll go to Italy and it's just pasta. Oh, my God. Emma's rolling her <laughs> eyes again. I guess if people go to Italy, I make a... All right. The last time we also talked about Italy. It's, like it's, a, it's a good eating place, you know? But good anyways... Eats. <laughs> just pasta with sliced porcinis and a butter i want to say probably but there is something remarkable about the texture and flavor of really good beautiful fresh mushrooms like that you're like oh i get it like i understand that was when i had them you're kind of like oh i, I get what the hype is about mm-hmm. and that doesn't always happen with mushrooms i hear what you're saying sometimes you're like eh, but then sometimes you do and it and it depends on how they're prepared how actual wild or fresh they are or whatnot how do you feel about raw mushrooms? See, they also will do a raw porcini salad. They'll do a kind of slice like you would get a raw artichoke salad sometimes with a, just a little bit of like olive oil and salt and maybe a little parm or something. I just like, you're like, okay, it's so subtle mm-hmm. that I, that's not, it's not how I would prefer. It's fine, but you're like, it's, you really have to have a pay attention palate wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not how I would spend my money. How do you feel about... I feel like there are two mushrooms that I think... Well, I don't know if I'm... I I think that they're a little overrated. At least I wouldn't buy them and cook with them. Okay. First is morels. So explain morels if anyone hasn't had morels. Well, I think technically they're not actually a mushroom, which is confusing. Oh, no. First was you and the nuts. Yeah, they're like a a different entity but they're associated with mushrooms so we have them here they look like they have this honeycomb texture um so they catch sauces really well yes and they're extremely valuable and very highly prized and people wait for them all year like ramps and fiddleheads they're a sign of spring the french like them they're is it oregon where are most of the morels yeah Yeah. a lot of them are in the northwest and you see them dried a lot I don't, yeah, the dried ones, they deliver a lot of umami. I'm not crazy about them. I think the fresh ones are unique. If you can get them, order them at a restaurant, they have kind of a one of a kind texture. They're distinct. You might not love it, but at least you're like, oh, that doesn't taste They're like any chewy other mushroom. And kind of a little spongy almost. Yeah, spongy. And I don't feel like I can do them justice. Like maybe I would order them out, but every time I've tried to cook them at home, I've not done a great job. Yeah, no, I think there's they're one of those things where I'm like, I'm not going to spend that much money on them. I would rather trust some French chef to get all saucy and whatever right. with them. And like, I yeah, I'm going to trust them, not myself. Those are also the kind of mushrooms that are actually dirty. Like I've bought morels and they have had literally actual worms. Oh, okay. And I just don't know. Sometimes you, Sometimes I think it's normal and you're just supposed to clean them and other times they are not edible anymore. That was all right. What's your other overrated mushroom? Oh, I don't think truffles are overrated, but I think like the truffle craze, mm-hmm. I don't really want to be a part of it. 
like I went home the other weekend and my mother-in-law had in the freezer where she keeps her nuts truffle flavored Marcona almonds That's from right. Trader Joe's and it was just extremely intense to the point where I was like I don't know if I like this or if I think this is the worst thing I've ever tasted I think truffles border on that like I'm not sure what I'm tasting sensation mm. and I like got, truffle fries and all that no I have so I yeah it's just it's overbearing I, but also like I wouldn't go to a restaurant and order an $80 pasta because it had shaved truffle on it that you can't even I can't really taste it you smell them more than you taste them right I yes I I like yeah, it's nice to have like the shaved truffle on a simple buttery pasta, but to pay $95 for it's kind of insane. Like, is it $95 good? No. No. Yeah, I think the mushrooms that I buy regularly are I buy shiitake, I buy trumpet, I buy oyster, I buy cremini. Let's talk about the maitake, which I feel like is having a moment in the last couple of years restaurant-wise, which looks like the hair cut sort of of like one of those troll you yeah. know, figures, you mm-hmm. know? But it gets super, you can like whole roast it and it gets all crunchy and craggy and crispy, right? Andy and I were actually having this conversation because he was trying to figure out how to just, how to differentiate the texture of a portobello from the texture of my taki. And I said a portobello is like meaty mm-hmm. and kind of juicy, which is kind of gross way to describe a mushroom. But yeah. it is like, it has more moisture and it's impossible to get all that moisture out. You're never going to get a portobello. You can slice a portobello very thin and roast it for a long time, and it'll probably get crispy. But a maitake, which is kind of thinner and not as dense. Kind of wavy. Yeah, it has a propensity to get really brown. Um, And the shape is just like really lends itself to kind of like these beautiful, random, wispy things. Yeah, it's kind of a dramatic mushroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I endorse. Yeah, I never buy that one. I don't think I do. Maybe I should, but I always enjoy when I get it at a restaurant and it's nicely crisp. You should buy them. I should. It always looks good. I'm like, ooh, that looks nice. Any last mushroom thoughts? You got a mushroom story for us, Jumpel? What's your biggest mushroom disaster? Oh my gosh, I probably have so many. I feel like mushrooms were those were one of those foods that I like swore I didn't like from age. However, whenever I could talk to like twenty years old, because I do kind of feel like mass prepared mushrooms, like the kind that I was eating in the dorm at college, or like. I don't know, at camp were really bad. Ew, yeah. And I think mushrooms are just one of those foods that if you put a lot of love and care into it, it will deliver. But if you're kind of just flippant, it's it might be mediocre and you might think you don't like them. Final thoughts from Sarah John Pell, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Kathy Robin, I'm I'm so excited to be here with you guys. I've been a major fan of Heath Ceramics for quite some time. My entire kitchen is is decked out in uh, various plates and bowls from the rim line. And as soon as Emma said that you guys were coming in, I immediately volunteered myself because <laughs> I just was so excited to meet you too. So thank thank you so much for coming. Thanks. We're excited to meet you as well, and and we're always excited to hear about people's collections. So those are nice stories behind it and why certain pieces and and how they came into your house and what are your favorites and all those things. Well, I have, right, so I have mostly the rim line, which is one of, right, the the oldest lines that Uh Keith has, right? It's the second to oldest, so it's the 60s line. Yeah. And that, I just was immediately attracted to it when I was thinking about 
like how I wanted to outfit my kitchen. I thought it seemed kind of timeless, something that I would like now and something hopefully, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now. And when I was preparing for this conversation, that kind of made me wonder is Heath has been around for quite some time, you know, first when it was established many, many decades ago to then when you guys took over in 2003, I believe. That's right. Okay. And what kind of astonishes me is how relevant you always are in the conversation around kitchenware and dinnerware. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how you're able to spread the gospel of your brand so well and moreover how you are able to just have this amazing staying power in a world that's very trend driven. Well, I think it's it's always important to look back and realize why you were founded and what was important in the times when Heath originated. So last year was 70 years that Heath wow. had been around. So yeah, there's some good staying power there. But, you know, Edith Heath founded this with like really kind of pure, um, I think, pure aesthetic and, and also like values that were about she, she loved clay. She loved the materials. She kind of fell in love with creating ceramics herself. And so there's a lot of, a lot of that you can feel in the original line, which is the, the coupe line. That mm-hmm. was her first line. It's very pure. It's very Bauhaus, which was um, an influence in her early studies and her early career. And so, you know, we're always, we're always a rare we're always very aware of that. That's the real roots. And, um, you know, a lot of, um, that's pretty trend resistant, right? But then we're also aware of what, what's happening around us and to keep things relevant, you kind of have to be aware of who's doing interesting, interesting things today and have current inspirations and all that. So we try to kind of move along and do new things as well. But the roots are, are pretty key and always remembering like why things started and where it came from. Mm-hmm. Staying within the parameters of what makes Heath Heath is really important. Yeah. Know? So while we move forward, it's always thinking about the integrity of the product, of the materials and the beauty and the depth of the materials and, and you know, not being scared to do things that are hard because sometimes that makes things more, it gives things more of a, a special feel. Uh, for people and, and um, you know when you try to hit trends you could miss right so if you don't try to hit trends and you stick to uh, what's classic and worked for you you don't run into that I'd love to jump in and say that one other thing that's important today is that we have a studio and so we have this kind of normal way that you go through a process of in a company of doing new things and thinking about what what's needed and all that but we have the studio that's um that's free of that, and so um, it enables um, this this incredible potter designer Tung Chang to always be thinking about um, what is Heath and what is not Heath, and push and actually do the work, you know. And so a lot of times things come out, and we go, no, no, actually that's that's too far this way, or it it doesn't feel right. Um, and doing that work is really important. It's super creative. Um, it does the work in the materials too, you know, which which is informing and it, it tells you. Uh, the materials in the process tells you a lot in, in doing that kind of work. So, and that's the studio, which is really exciting because it's a it's a you know it's a counterpoint to the factory where the factory starts to you know can start to limit freedom a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we have to create this really inefficient, unscripted, loose situation in the studio where experiments can happen and surprises can happen. So, talk to me a little bit about the. 
ideas that go into when you say no or when you say yes as someone is innovating in the studio? Is it is it a gut feeling? How are you kind of measuring yourself for, for what is Heath and what isn't Heath? Yeah, at some level, it's a gut feeling. Like, you know, Tongue and I will look at something new and we're almost always in sync, but sometimes a conversation goes goes on on why mm-hmm. you know why does that not feel right but it's always it always starts with a, f- a feeling and then sometimes it works into some kind of rationale so when you're thinking about you have both a winter and a summer collection every year right when you're thinking about the new collections how how do you get inspiration overall how do you kind of begin that process yeah it's interesting because because uh, when we do that kind of work that's not in the studio okay. it's often inspired by something that's happened in the studio mm-hmm. but so we're thinking and and we're thinking very much about color and and feel and experimenting with glazes it's not very much on shape because that's too hard to kind of take shape and and iterate it that quickly and it also doesn't feel um, it doesn't feel right to us. We feel like, no, we have things that work. They don't need to be kind of changed up. But the inspiration can come from, from anywhere. And sometimes it's looking back because we have such an incredible history. And you look back and then there's always something that feels fresh again, mm-hmm. right? So sometimes you build off of that. And sometimes it's something, you know, that you find out in the world that just like, you know, there's, there's colors that you see or that you feel that feel interesting and we can bring those back in. And we love just working with the material. Like sometimes we do these, we do experiments with glaze and tests with glaze where we develop new ones all the time, every day. It's like often we're just seeing something and, you know, there's a small a small group of us, really there's two people, <laughs> myself and, and this um, woman, Rosalie, who's an incredible sense of color, but it's also a little different than mine. So it's like interesting to see where things resonate for both of us. And, um, and we're just always looking and feeling feeling it out. I think it's interesting for us to be able to, you know, the work that you guys do, and, and Tongue is part of that, and Winnie's part of that too, is the experimentation of, 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 of around technique, where sometimes something happens, you have an idea and you, you keep going with it and it ends up in an unexpected place, but that's where you wanted to end up, but you just didn't know it. And, and that's about process. But then there's also this incredible library we have of, of you know, 70 years of history of, of work Edith Heath started and, you know, processes that she developed, experiments that she did. And, and there have been some amazing things we've done recently that came from trying to recreate how did she do that. Fascinating. And in some cases, we have been able to recreate how she did that. Or it's led to this other idea I was just, you know, that I was talking about where it created something new, but in a really interesting place you didn't know. But one you thing were we just to. we just did is sea and um, sand, yeah. Sea and sand, which is a, a old glaze. It was, you know, I guess it's called a pattern um, back in the day, right? But there was a gradation of kind of green and black that went to like a light color and in the middle of the plate. Difficult hand spray technique, you know, yeah. something that you really have to master. You can't dip the glaze and get this effect, and there's a Not lot of e- skill. No easy way out. But I think for me, I looked back and went, wow, this was really iconic. This was a 60s kind of thing. He felt like that, not necessarily what people think it felt like today. So it felt mm-hmm. important to kind of put a little bit of notice on, on that again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we figured out how to recreate it and we yeah. did some pieces in that. And maybe it will grow into something mm-hmm. that sticks in the line. I don't know. We'll see how it feels. It's important, I think, to, to you know, the, the guys we have glazing, you know, to sort of up that process every now and again and it's not easy but push them to master process and 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 do that in 
you know, a volume that is, you know, kind of a factory scale volume, but it is about mastery of process and craft. And, and that has to always be an element of what we do. It's where we came from. When you say factory scale, could you describe like how much are you producing? Is that a very complicated question to answer? Um, a little complicated. It might be complicated. I mean, <laughs> let me see if I can think about scale. that. I haven't thought about it in those terms. What is factory scale? Um, I think it goes back to the idea of what's funny. I mean, there's there's a lot of levels here. When people have never heard of Heath and Kathy and I talked to them, maybe we're on vacation or something like that, and the conversation will come up. What do you do at home and so on? And, and we say. Well, we own a pottery, and they immediately, you can see in their face, they're about to tell you about their aunt that throws pots in the garage because yeah. they imagine the two of us sitting you know, at wheels. And it's like, no, 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 this is a factory scale. But it's such an unusual idea for you know, this day and age in this country to have a pottery factory. So you know, what does that mean? And, and, and it goes back to the idea of creating the, the clay studio, which is, can be very loose and it's small production and it's hand-thrown. And the counterpoint to the factory, which is when you are producing things at a scale when you have to have consistency and consistent expectations and consistent quality and efficiency, because ultimately that, that leads into what becomes expected in the store. You know, the, you know when you put things in a store and, and, and customers start to expect a certain consistency and similarity between piece to piece and not be surpri- want to be surprised by the oddball beauty uh, that might be in that stack of plates. Yeah. And, and so it, that for me is what, it's not so much about volume, but it's that expectation where you have to have a different level of attention driving things that are sometimes not totally in line with creativity and, and, and the beauty of surprises that you can't actually get in, in ceramics. But to paint a picture of the of the factory, the original factory is in Sausalito, and I, I think where the dinner that's where all our dinnerware is made, and I, I believe it's about twenty thousand square feet is the area used up by the yeah, dinnerware factory, like that. right? Yeah. So it's a maze. I mean, maybe that gives some sense to it. So in twenty thousand square feet, we're able to make all the Heath dinnerware that gets out into the world. So it's not huge, but it's definitely not a garage. And yeah. then, well, we, I think I've always said it's a, like a fifty thousand square foot factory squeezed into twenty. 20,000. Yeah, maybe th- yeah, that's true. There's a lot squeezed in there. It's quite efficient. But a few years ago, we moved out the tile production <coughs> to a new factory in San Francisco. And so we're able to kind of expand and really use all that Sausalito space. And so we have a fairly large space. I mean, it's again about uh, it's more than 20,000 square feet where we're making the tile. And that's a was a newly designed factory. So it's kind of we're able to kind of really make more current kind of manufacturing mm. thinking in that space. So that's that's the scale and then I guess I think of it more as it's the approach you have to take when you go from studio to factory. Right. At this point, is your customer base more kind of like the the home consumer or is it more of a restaurant buying plates kind of for their It's both and there's a synergy okay. between the two absolutely. You know, we know that um, you know, we know that that customers see the plates in restaurants and their favorite restaurants and and you know we know that we're no longer the only people in the world that that flips plates when they go out to eat yeah <laughs> and our customers do it too and it happens really often and then we know that there are a lot of chefs we work with that have wonderful collections of heath you know uh, rivaling yours uh, <laughs> at, at home and brandon jew of mr jews in san francisco he's in our store 
with his dog and his wife almost every other weekend, just <laughs> seeing what they can find. And it, it's sometimes for the restaurant, sometimes for home. There's probably a little bit of back and forth there. I think of the chefs so. a lot of times in the restaurants inspire people to mm-hmm. kind of want to create and take that kind of care in their home. And um, yeah, so it's inspiring when you, mm-hmm. you get presented this whole thing in a restaurant that's yeah. on Heath and you want to have it. And Heath has been doing it for a long time and it, it's 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 because it's been able to withstand the test of time of that kind of an environment and and to be able to have the color that we do and you know it's it's a it's a great setting for us to be in and 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 it's you know chefs are a really and restaurants are a really important part of what we do as well very much so so i spend a lot of time following various small ceramicists on on instagram i'm i love scrolling through their you feeds. too <laughs> yeah so I, that's what yeah. i was wondering is as a very non-expert in the in the world of ceramics i, I kind of feel like we're in this like golden age of, of restaurant ceramics right now mm-hmm. where kind yeah. of because of instagram people are are sharing what they do to kind mm-hmm. of a whole new audience and i'm seeing them right all over different restaurants are you also finding this inspiration too on instagram is that a big part of of how you're seeing things now or are you you mentioned earlier you're really more kind of actually looking more into history, looking more into yeah. the archives of Heath. I mean, we do try to keep aware of what's going yeah. on, and sometimes there's um, inspiring stuff out there for sure, but I don't think we really, we don't obsess over it mm-hmm. too much. And the thing is, is, you know, what's, it's super, I mean, it's incredibly wonderful that people are, you know, they feel like empowered and capable to be like, I can just start doing this, right? And then sometimes it grows where they can um, serve a restaurant. So that. That's just inspiring, like, you know, on a people level, for mm-hmm. people doing what they love. But I think, I think for us, for the, I mean, for the company, too, it's like we're trying to create this this product that um, can can scale up a little bit with restaurants who are doing, you know, more, more plates and mm-hmm. stuff per day. And that is quality and durability is really important, which is harder to get on a smaller scale. So we need to keep our eye on, like, on that, on the on the functional part because a lot of times you know it's that it's that radius that you design on the end of the plate that you have to like test and you have to kind of get it to be you yeah. know so that you're happy with the way that it looks and it feels in your hand but then also as plates are hitting it it's it resists the chipping so we do that kind of work too and that you can't see on Instagram no. <laughs> that's that's the work behind it sometimes yeah, you can't just make anything and put it in a restaurant and we've definitely learned that and but um, maybe you can you know, if you don't, if you can hand wash it all, right? If you can hand wash it all. Because <laughs> ceramics are innately situation. durable, but there's so much more if you really want to have it work in a restaurant over time. I think where we do get inspiration, though, is, I mean, we do get inspiration back from customers. You know, we create things that, that people then use as a as a baseline for what they design. And, you know, I think especially with restaurants, there is no, you know, the designer is often the chef, the owner, the restaurateur. You know, it's they have a vision and... You know, sometimes we get that inspiration from, you know, we might create a collection. It might be the rim line or the Japanese line or, or some of the clay studio pieces. But then sometimes you see what, what chefs have done with it in their setting, and that comes back to us as inspiration, you know, and kind of blowing us away. You know, we think about what Christopher Acosta has done at the Charter Oak where he went really deep in working with our clay studio to do a lot of custom pieces and hand-thrown pieces and the result is amazing or you know even you know i think the latest tartine that's opened the color palette that they did and the real mix of colors you know you're just surprised wow somebody really created this with 
with our pieces, and that will sometimes go on to inspire maybe other things that we do in our studio or in, in developing glazes and so on. So there's, I think, I think that's the strongest inspiration, you know, is what our customers end up doing with it. And what about when you're at, you know, someone's house for dinner? Are you kind of like creeping through their kitchen, mm-hmm. seeing how they organize things, seeing yeah. what they're serving things? Yeah. We, do we, that. Do, we do that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> do people feel judged? Like, I always feel pressure when I'm hosting a dinner party because I work at Bon Appetit. I uh-huh. feel that people are expecting me to cook, like, well and beyond what my actual cooking <laughs> ability is. Like, yeah. Are people nervous about having you over? I don't know. I, I hope imagine, not, well, but maybe they are. I imagine it's, it's possible, yeah. It's <laughs> like, yeah, they're always going to mention, like, I'm sorry, these aren't Heath plates or something <laughs> like that. And we're like, it's okay. We like lots of different things. And <laughs> I feel judged when people come, when we have people come over to our dinner. Or no, maybe not judged, but anyway, but I'm, when we invite people over for dinner. We do feel like the bar is high. I do feel like the bar is high for us. But we also do, like, we kind of play off each other mm-hmm. and, like, we expect, like, we're, like when we do have people over, which isn't like we don't do it like every week, but we do try and like really pull it together. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's fun to try to do it well. Yeah. I mean, who else can be like, okay, we're having a special dinner. It's your birthday. Let's do a custom plate. <laughs> we <laughs> only do that once. We do not do that every yeah. time people it's come not about, over. Well, let's go. We need another dish. Let's go to the store. Let's do a custom plate. Yeah. So. That's kind of fun to do that sometimes. And no, but yes, we're not, not like that. We're that. not that uptight too. We do it casual too. But but we do sometimes. We okay. are like, okay, let's just kind of do it well. Yeah. And tell me what's what's next for for Heath. I was reading um, some information you sent me about like a, a five year plan you had that goes up to twenty twenty one. I yeah. believe. So what happens after twenty one? Is there anything really big on the horizon you're able well, to share? Well, what I mean, so what you're referring to is, so we we did a five year vision and it's coming up on the end, and so it's really interesting because we've achieved a lot of what we set out to do, and even to go back a little further, we did that because we had when we initially purchased teeth and we ha- we had a vision that wasn't so formal as the one that you saw, but it, we really achieved that and and we suddenly felt like oh okay we set out to kind of like create this sustainable business and we wanted to kind of we kept all the manufacturing jobs we want, and, yeah we and, went and back to selling area. direct we, we expanded and that we opened these stores it was everything and then we're like okay like we felt really um we had a little bit of an identity crisis or something because mm-hmm. we're like okay that's heat but like how does it move forward so we did that and and then anyway, answer your question, we next year is our year to do the vision for the next five years. And so right now it's really fuzzy and there's some things floating in our head, but not so much that we're ready to put the pen to paper. But it, it is, there's a lot of questions about scale that we ask ourselves because there's like, t- to me and to a scale is so important it influences absolutely everything about the business and your life and your employees life and you have to go about it very carefully and our instinct is never to like let's just bigger to get bigger but um, it does allow you sometimes other opportunities and to achieve mm-hmm. other things so we're thinking about scale we're also um, you know we're incredibly local but we you know we do like to share our, our work with the outside world. So what does that mean? And then um, we like working in other materials as mm-hmm. well. So we're experimenting with that. But, you know, how integral is that to Heath? We have a newsstand. We have all these ideas. And I think that part of this ver- vision was really to dig in and to learn from those. And the next vision is like, okay, what do we want to commit to? Um, and what things do we just want to play with? Because it helps us be, be creative and 
Everybody that works focus on creativity is, is kind of where we've been going. And we are very stuck on the idea of, of it's more important to be great than big. I use Alice Waters in this example a lot because I get, you know, I might get a lot of students asking me questions or, you know, can I get advice? I'm starting a company. How, you know, I want it to be really big and I want to get all this investment money. And, you know, in the Bay Area, that's kind of like a, you know, you make this natural assumption. I have to get a big investment and grow huge. And it's like, wait a minute. You know, it's like you want to be influential. How many restaurants does Alice have? She's got one. And who's more influential than her? And what she does, right? And so that kind of brings that back to earth. And so, you know, that's the idea of being great in everything we do and not just bigger. We can still have, you know, you can still be influential. And, and, and that's our focus and the idea of human scale and keeping things human scale has also, also always been a value, you know. And, and, and even while growing, not growing in a way that forces you to do things you don't want to do and being very careful about about that, you know, be careful of, of, of people who want to give you things, right? Because there's always something, <laughs> something uh, they might something want, want something back, right? So we've always been very careful in those things. So this is why, you know, what it's led to is not just building bigger factories and increasing more and more production. You know, as we talked about before, we already have a factory scale. You know, what's a bigger factory scale? It's just a bigger factory scale. And so we've done things like we've started a, you know, we created this newsstand, which just happens to be this love for print, totally seemingly unrelated, but it's, it's still this tactile element and, and the focus on, on, on publications around food and design and culture and uh, also a big travel focus because it's so interesting to look at other places in the world and other cultures. And we started this small clay studio of hand-thrown pieces, you know, to focus creativity. And we're talking, you know, four people hand-throwing pieces. We started a soft goods studio that makes bags and aprons. And, you know, that's four people as well. And it's that, you know, being able to do things in small groups is very human scale and enables that creativity. So continuing to explore, continuing to different materials, but, but for the same reasons why Heath exists, but just in different directions. So I think there'll probably be a little bit more of yeah, that. Yeah, and the s- sustainability yeah. aspect of the business, is it sustainable as a business for a long term? And environmentally, are we doing things without compromise? And so we've made a lot of progress on that. And so going forward, I mean, that that bar gets even higher. Yeah, that's that sounds like a lot already. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's enough right, yeah. to do there. Last question. You are banished to a desert island for the rest of your life and can only bring one Heath product with you. It doesn't have to be functional. Like, don't think about function. Just like, if you, like, what do you treasure the most if you oh, could only funny. have I one? I immediately thought of function. I was like, it has <laughs> yeah. to be able okay, to do everything. Okay, well, you could answer that. The desert island I don't want to restrict off. your answer. <clears throat> you go to a Hampton Inn and you can only bring one. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say, this, which we happen to have one sitting in front of us, is... I think my favorite. It's the footed Japanese bowl. Yeah, it's this. It's this bowl because, and if I was on a desert island, I mean, you kind of need something to ground you and kind of give you hope. This feels like that kind of a piece. So it's the Japanese footed like cafe label, but also highly functional. I mean, you could eat anything in this bowl. You can drink anything in this bowl, um, and it's a newer design too. So it, um, you know, I have a lot invested in. And that is one of my projects. That's a new color. Do you want that color or do you want a different color? Mm. That's kind of a nice pinkish rose. The rose color. Um, 
I don't know. The color would, would not be so important. Depends on the color of the ones. sand on this yeah. desert island. What color yeah. is the sand there? Yeah. Is it like more of a Are white sand trees? or a dark sand? Um, it's all got to go together. Um, I, I'm going to go for it's a white sand, yeah. <laughs> then I then maybe the it's kind of the color of a sunset that you're hoping to see. So. Oh, great point. There you go. Robin? I had more time to think about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also kind of immediately went to function because I was thinking about this desert island thing. What am I going to need? Am I going to survive? But you also got to have things. I'm sorry, of, I didn't things of fully beauty. sketch out what the desert yeah, island has. Things of beauty on the desert island, and but I think I'm going to settle on probably the piece that I use at home the most often and always reach for, which is uh, the large serving bowl, and which is just this big bowl that's just so wonderful to hold, and it it I often. It, I just use it. I cook almost every evening, and it's just the bowl that everything gets mixed in and and stirred in. And it's even, you know, I even enjoy washing it by hand. <laughs> it's like got this shape where it's just like so easy to just wash and, and that motion. So it'll be useful on a desert island because I'll wash it out with sand in the water. And they can definitely fit like a full coconut inside. I know. I you know the size of the large. Fit a whole, yeah. uh, a whole coconut. You yeah. could fit a crab in there. You could fit all sorts of things. Cool. What would you bring? Can I, am I um, allowed to ask you? Yeah, I I didn't think about that. Now <laughs> I'm on the spot. I actually think I would take the small, the small serving bowl. Yeah. I have both the large and yep. the small, and I really like the size of the small because it's not actually that small. So I think you can fit a lot like that tends to be a bowl I use for a lot of side dishes a lot of like dips and things mm-hmm. like that um for all the dips I'll be making on it's the important to have yeah. dips on <laughs> yeah. the dish it seems very yeah. practical coconut yeah. dip yeah yeah mm-hmm. Kathy and Robin thank you so much it was really wonderful chatting with you great to chat with you you too thank you hi this is Alex Beggs and this is cook Mary kill Cook. This weekend I saw a guy out for a run on 7th Avenue in Manhattan playing Christmas carols on the flute. Badly, out of tune, wrong notes. He was also pulling a wagon of Christmas lights behind him. It sounded something like this. It reminded me of that saying by um, Charles Manson, I guess. If you're going to do something, do it well. But what if we went a little easier on ourselves? How about if you're going to do something, doing it half-ass works too. I could tell which song it was. It put me in a festive mood. And if you're going to cook a new recipe like I did when I made B.A.'s best pecan pie last weekend, don't worry if the crust burns and then cracks off pretty much entirely when you grab it out of the oven with those gigantic mitts. The rest was good. Another thing I cooked this week, a great older B.A. recipe called gojujang and sesame roasted winter squash. I've uh, half-assed it by skipping the sesame seed garnish because it's all about the spicy oil you rub all over the squash, which caramelizes in the oven. I can even talk through the whole recipe because I have it memorized. Cut some butternut squash or whatever's your favorite. Mix a tablespoon or so of gojujang, which is a Korean chili paste, with a splash of soy sauce, some vegetable oil. Rub that all over the squash. Roast at 425 for half an hour. Top of scallions. It's spicy, a little sweet, perfect as a side or for lunch prep. If you have the sesame seeds, it's crunchy too. Make it. Mary, 
I want to marry all the BA readers who made the full Making Perfect Thanksgiving menu. Wow. I know those recipes inside and out, so I know that was a lot of work. I'm impressed. On YouTube, you can watch David Seymour's recap called I Spent Three Days, Days is all caps, making Bon Appetit's perfect Thanksgiving recipes. When he finally gets to try the food, it's like 3 a.m., he's exhausted, not super into how tart the cranberry sauce is, but everything looked fantastic. We're proud of you, David. On Reddit, user SS McLemon, uh, I think I pronounced that <laughs> probably wrong, posted a picture of his Making Perfect Thanksgiving, a lovely tablescape with a nice pumpkin print tablecloth and matching napkins, orange pillar candles are all lit, the shards of shredded cheese on the radicchio salad look to die for, the cranberry jello sauce is flawless, and the turkey looks just like our cover. As for everyone else who broke down a turkey, used gelatin for the first time, or sprinkled MSG in your gravy, we love you! Kill! I want to kill every holiday gift guide that tells me to buy people kitchen appliances. Unless someone explicitly asks for an air fryer, don't buy them one. It's not fun to get an appliance that isn't an easy bake oven. Everything else is a bulky burden. Studies have found that people are happiest when they receive gifts they asked for. So ask me. I'll provide a list. I've gotten KitchenAid stand mixer attachments from my outlaws the past two years and haven't touched either the pasta maker or the sausage thingy. I feel terrible about it. But honestly, I'm just as bad. Once I got my boyfriend a soda stream for his 33rd birthday and it was as depressing as it sounds. I could have bought it any other time of year. That's not a present. Presents should be delightful, personal, meaningful, or just like a really nice card that confesses your undying love for someone. Did you know that $13 billion is spent on unwanted presents every year in the United States? That's a lot of sausage thingies. By the way, when a publication puts an expensive appliance in a gift guide, it increases the affiliate commission, aka money, they'll make, and I've probably done it in the past nine years I've been writing them. So I'm suspect of a certain newspaper that recommends five different coffee machines in their gift guide. Did I just blow open a whole conspiracy theory? Maybe. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman, with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Inamine. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.